Thank you so much, and I was so delighted I got through the snow coming all the way down from the north. The story of Joseph in Genesis uh, drew me because of the numerous times Joseph cries. I mean, he breaks out crying many, many times. The account describes him, you know, quite embarrassingly breaking down and weeping. And he often weeps uh, not at the moments that you would expect, like when he's thrown into prison, falsely accused, and he might rot there forever. But he, he weeps at odd moments of glimpses into the vulnerability of being a human being. He doesn't weep when he's six years old and his mother dies. He didn't weep when he was thrown into prison. But he does weep when he sees his brother Benjamin's face for the first time after many years of separation. Benjamin, the youngest brother of the 12. You know, the brothers uh, give their names to the 12 tribes of Israel, of Jacob. And Benjamin, being the youngest brother, was not involved in the violence against Joseph. And also, Benjamin was Joseph's full brother. He was the son of the same mother, because of course in those tribal semi-nomadic days, it was quite common that a patriarch would have numerous wives, as Jacob, our patriarch, had several wives. He doesn't weep when he is, his life is threatened, but he weeps when he sees his aged father finally reunited. And the weeping there is the weeping of relief. There he is, Joseph, the grown man, with his vizier's crown. He's ostensibly the most powerful man in Egypt. He's number two to the pharaoh. He basically runs the place. And as it's been in crisis with the, with the drought and with the having to put all the grain into storage to feed the nations, which Joseph oversaw as, as vizier, Here's Joseph, tall, imposing, with his great crown on, and he sees his father, who's old and bent over, stout, wizened, you know, that sort of unkempt look with his hands, you know, trembling, grasping clumsily his staff. And it's in that moment that Joseph feels he can finally rest his head on shoulders that are stronger, than his own, and he weeps. And it's the psychological honesty of the account in Genesis over many chapters. It's one of our most thorough, longest narratives in the Bible. And as you know, it's based on what we think is a long tradition, an oral tradition, possibly going back three and a half thousand years ago. So really, at the cusp of the height of polytheistic empires and all their bureaucratic and military might, and this glimmering, this little whisper of a shoot of monotheism, which in Joseph's time is coming out of a local tribal deity, El, you know, the god of the Hebrews, El meaning the god. Sometimes they talk about Elohim, because there wasn't in any sense excluding the possibility, the existence of other deities that belong to other tribes or other nations. So it's really early days for the monotheistic Abrahamic tradition. We have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Joseph is the son of Jacob. And you probably know how he is the favored son, but this does not spell for an easy life. Another reason why I was drawn to write about the narrative, this book is written not as a psychological treatise, although I am a psychologist and I have to do a lot of that kind of writing. It's written like a good yarn. It's written like a story. It's my first uh, attempt at writing that way. And it, it sort of absorbed me in a work of imagination, which as I uh, formerly was a dancer and a choreographer, it just sort of tapped into all that visceral reality and that interpersonal reality that is Joseph's life, that is our life. 
And another reason I was so drawn to the Joseph narrative is, you know, how many of us have been thrown into a pit and a prison by our brothers? How many of us become the Grand Vizier of Egypt in a time of drought? No, but we are like him and he is like us because he's quite egocentric. I mean, he really does see himself as the center, the central star of the constellation of his family. He's also opportunistic. This is how he gets himself out of a mess time after time. He suffers lifelong broken relationships, a very dysfunctional family. The dysfunctional family is not fixed in a pretty way. Uh, with some of our you know, stage presentations of Joseph, which I've enjoyed and I'm sure you've enjoyed, it sort of belies the subtlety and the complexity of the Genesis narrative, where the threads are not wrapped up that neatly. You know, the family is what it is, even at the end. But it's reframed by, by Joseph's actions. So Joseph is like us because he suffers broken relationships, dysfunctional family, depression, that paralyzing sense of nothing I can do will make anything better. Life is as bleak as it can possibly be. Life is unjust towards me. Joseph certainly experiences stress. And when he became the Grand Vizier, it wasn't like, wow, some kind of power trip, all my problems are over. His life was at risk every day. Would his dream interpretations prove true? If not, he'd have the same fate as those he saw in prison who ended up beheaded or on a stake. That anxiety that pervaded his successful adult life was the anxiety of him having to hide his true self. And in the book I talk about Joseph's above-ground self, the imposing vizier with his headdress, his crown, like a punch in his brother's face. See what you did to me, but look, I've beat you, and I am higher than you. There was that above-ground self. And there was also this below-ground self, the self that was defined by the pit his brothers had thrown him into, defined by the prison he had spent, it seems like, possibly two decades in. The timeline is fuzzy, of course, in the account. And in that pit was the complete degradation of himself, his physical body, his identity, and in that era, which was a collective era, to have been sold as a slave by one's own family, for one's own family and kin to want you to be dead, is unmentionable. A person was only defined by their belonging in their collective. The honor of the collective is what gave honor to the individual. Joseph had none when he was sold into slavery. And he has to hide that below-ground self while he's got this towering mantle of the vizier, and he's saving the land through his strategies to build up the stores of grain, and all the known world comes to Egypt to buy grain. So Joseph, like us, encounters depression, stress, anxiety. He encounters threat to worldview because he was, according to this story, a faithful Hebrew. He believed, he imbibed, he dwelled upon the stories of his forefathers, the actions of El through the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, told around the fire night after night. And when he undergoes his great traumatic events, retelling these stories to himself saves him, keeps, gives him some internal coherence. But that has to be hidden away while he's dealing with the reality of this overwhelmingly sophisticated culture, which is polytheistic in its quite accurate explanation for the natural forces of the world they lived in.
wasn't an irrational polytheism. It was a, a sort of a narrative account of how the Egyptians experienced nature with its chaotic side, its fertile side, the regular flooding of the Nile and the way that brought life, the, the delicate balance which is Mayat, which is the goddess of harmony. And it is the goddess of harmony, and she's symbolized by a feather. If any of you have been to the uh, exhibition on the Book of the Dead, you often see the feather in the balance, and the heart is weighed against the feather. That feather represents Mayat. It's a female deity of harmony, and it has to do with all the forces of nature and all the relationships between human beings, pharaoh, lords, servants, doctors, scribes, and between humans and animals, that whole woof and, and warp of interrelationships has to be harmonious. And if Mayat is disturbed, if Mayat is displeased, then the forces of nature are out of kilter and death is the result. Osiris will die, the grain will fall into the ground, but it will not rise. And so all the stories of the, the pantheon of gods in Egypt were telling the story of the natural world and how delicately balanced it all was. So here we have this semi-nomadic shepherd boy with his local understanding of El, the god, and the stories, very modest stories you know, based on real-life accounts, often quite blobby accounts, you know, when Jacob lied or, you know, stole, and having to face those consequences. So that's all Joseph has, is this store of accounts. And then here's the sophistication of Egypt with its high degree of literacy, mathematics, astonishing engineering. How many of us still are amazed at the achievements of Egypt today. He undergoes loss and grief. His mother dies when he's six years old. His world is rocked. And then, of course, there's the attack of his brothers. Much of the account in Genesis, I believe, portrays realistically his struggle with forgiveness. Uh, some portrayals of Joseph will kind of give a poof version of Forgiveness. Oh, I forgive. It's all over. It never happened. And I think the Genesis account is much more complex. We see Joseph zigging and zagging. He's, he'll explore, you know, he doesn't really want to shop his brothers, but he does. And he puts Simeon in, pr in prison. And Simeon undergoes the, exactly the same kind of trauma that Joseph himself had undergone in the prisons in Egypt. And he sends his brothers back to report what has happened to the, their father, Jacob, all the time keeping his identity hidden because he can't expose who he is to the Egyptians. He's living this double life. But he's, you know, I, I know I can't use the F word here. He is blanking with their head. He is, he is scaring them. He is terrorizing them. He is giving them a taste of their own medicine. He's also perceiving how are they going to react to this? It's almost like he's saying, okay, now you go through what I went through. I'm going to watch you, and then I'm going to learn. And in watching what this recreation of the trauma I've been through, I'm going to decide what I'm going to do. So there's this element of improvisation. What is he going to do with his brothers who are now helpless in Egypt? They've come to Egypt as refugees because of the famine. And here he is, the great vizier. They thought, He'd be dead by then because they had sold him for 20 shekels, the going rate, as a slave into Egypt. And so this theme of forgiveness and unforgiveness is a very big one in the book because I followed the account in Genesis as loyally as I could. I didn't invent new happenings, but I unpacked it psychologically bringing out the, the hidden drama between the lines, unpacking some of the minor characters as well as the major characters. And in the last chapter, we have that final chapter of life when we have to start facing death, the reality of death. And in the Genesis account, we have Jacob's death, we have Joseph getting old, and that task of integrating the shreds of our life at the end 
trying to make some sense out of it, seeing the dreams that have been fulfilled and the dreams that have patently not been fulfilled. And in that messy picture, Joseph sees, almost like the mortar between these great stones, seeping through the cracks of his life is hesed, the Hebrew word meaning loving kindness. Almost in spite of himself, that is certainly my interpretation of the Joseph narrative, in spite of some of his own zigging and zagging in, the, in his journey of forgiveness, what seeps through the cracks is something that is beyond himself, this hesed, the loving-kindness of El. So it's a good read, it's a good yarn. I interweave it with psychological reflection, and I bring a whole range of psychologies, certainly uh, counseling psychology and developmental. I'm a social psychologist, so that gets thrown in. A bit of clinical psychology and pastoral and uh, pastoral psychology. We look at his life experience through those lens. So the, the way the book is written is this interweaving of narrative with psychological reflection. And some of the themes that I highlighted are themes that I think kind of go unspoken in our current culture. And the first theme that I highlight, not only at the beginning of the book, but throughout, is this theme of all of our lives being built upon an initial traumatic experience, e.g. our birth. Everyone's birth is some kind of struggle. If it's cesarean, it's a big surprise. You know, whoop, the world is unzipped, the light pours in, you're lifted out. That's a big shock. But most of us go through a real fight, a real struggle. And that actually has psychological implications, and it's stored in our visceral kinesthetic memory. And I start the book with a little my own version of describing from the infant's perspective. This is the infant Joseph, but we're all the infant Joseph. The story begins, as we all do, within a seamless time. We hail from a warm world without comings or goings, needs or desires. Our first home is muted, soft and fluid close and secure, yet without measure, vast as the starry sky, the dream time. Abruptly, a strange force takes over our peaceful world. It presses down, insistent. It comes, goes, comes back again. It drifts away. All is well. The familiar, steady rhythm returns to calm our world. Then the force returns, pressure mounting as if for battle. It balloons, threatens, becomes an earthquake. The force shunts us around, constricts, and crushes. We are pushed to where we did not intend to go, turned around and upside down. We cannot understand why. Our small hands curled up, our head down, turning our shoulder to the plow, but looking back, oh, looking back. We have no concept of time. It is forever. We endure the endless, endless crushing. We fight and suffer, severed from peace without hope. The senseless pushing increases, destroys, and finally implodes. At last, time and space burst in upon us with the cold, clashing noise of an alien world. We are shocked, expelled, Darkness is now the pain of light. Our first act is a sharp intake of breath. We cry and protest. And now begins our Herculean task to organize the universe and become a self. That's each one of us. And what psychology, and in particular the uh, psychological theologian James Loder from the United States 
proposes, as have many other psychologists, Frank Lank being one, that this initial experience is like a, a sort of substratum to any conscious experience. And when we undergo trauma or shock, it reverberates, it re-evokes in a wordless, conceptless way this sense of annihilation to our former security. To become a self is a construction, it's an arduous task. And we think of ourselves and others as just a given. Oh, of course you're you. You've always been you. You'll always be you. No. Who you are this very instant is an effortful construction. We hold it together, all the disparate parts of ourselves. And when a shock comes in, whoo, pulls out the rug from underneath us and reverberating in the background, not in the conscious mind, of course, because we had no concepts to organize that surprise. That birth trauma is being re-evoked. And the echoes go through and we feel our sense of self could, like a, a shaking pane of glass, just And the repeated traumas in Joseph's life, big and small, in my portrayal of his life experience, re-evokes that. And there's really no solution to that humanly. There's no, there's no answer to that. There's no, dear, dear, that's okay. This is when we are just alone, vulnerable, in the face of we don't know what. And as we grow as human beings, we hope and pray that that vulnerability will be met. And this theme of hesed, the Hebrew word for loving kindness, seeping through the cracks, is that nonverbal answer to our experience. So that's one of the themes that I bring through in the book. And another theme I bring is about being a dual culture kid. And we have a diagram, which I think has already been passed out. It'll make sense as I, as I go on. You don't have to read it right now, but I'll, I'll be heading in that direction. Well, Joseph is a dual culture kid. He is, as I said, a faithful Hebrew. And in order to be the vizier of this massively sophisticated culture, he has to become literate. He has to learn how to figure out those picture words. He has to learn to become bilingual in two cultures and to understand the, the deities behind those world cultures. How does he handle that? That's very threatening. Now, I think that's very akin. That's another way in which Joseph is like us. We are living in a globalized context where worldviews are rubbing up against each other in uncomfortable ways. And many people, and I think ourselves as Christians, are under a sense of worldview threat. My worldview isn't just the given that I thought it was. We've got other people's worldviews vying for space, and maybe they're getting more converts than we are. We feel on the defensive. We feel threatened. Our sacred values are threatened. Now, there's hints in the Genesis account, which we can link to history and, and to biblical exegesis, that possibly the, the, the time the account is sort of based in is near or just after the times of the Hyksos incursions into Egypt. And that was a real shock to Egypt, to be ruled by outsiders. And, you know, the resentment, and the Hyksos had kings, you know, they, they really took over the place. Now, we don't know exactly what period of history we're in, but it, it sort of has resonances uh, in the Genesis account. And one of the things that attracted me, uh, besides this breaking, you know, bursting into tears every so often, which I thought was very psychologically honest, was this repeated statement in Genesis that says, ah, but to the Egyptians, the, the Hebrews, the Semites, were unclean because they were semi-nomadic shepherds of animals. Nothing to do with our concept of race or ethnicity, to do with culture and the sense of 
If you are in our culture, the Egyptian culture, you are out there in the Nile taking a bath every morning, washing yourself even with soap. Even the, the slave people would wash with soap because otherwise the stench would even reach the nostrils of the gods. So to be a semi-nomadic shepherd of animals is in the eyes of the Egyptians, and also who think Hyksos, those Semitic in invaders from the north and the, and, and the east, woo, we really hate them. Now here's Joseph kind of ringing those bells for the Egyptians. He is treading a fault line. How does he deal with especially the sense of uncleanness on both sides of the divide? What if he lets go of his father's stories? He loses his identity as a member of, as a direct descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If he lets go of his father's stories, but if he hangs on to his father's stories, then he's unclean in the eyes of the Egyptians. So he's got this massive conflict going on all the time, as well as this sense of his above-ground identity and his shameful, my family wanted me dead. In a collective culture, you have no right to exist if your family wanted you dead. So he, he's living with these tensions. Now, when people are under threat, when our important values are threatened, and values underpin our worldview, something happens to how we think. And psychologists call this cognitive complexity. Another term is integrative complexity. I'll explain that in, in a moment. Now, in the diagram I've, I've given you, uh, the, the boxes describe what happens to our thinking as we go through life. Now, in the first box in the upper left, it's just all shade, it's just gray. The world is as I always thought it was. This is the world I was, I was born into. I'm like the fish in the water, and the water I'm in is the lens through which I see life. That's how it is. I don't question it, it works for me. And many of us spend most of our life, and in a single culture context, that's what we'll do. We are now living in multi cultural context and we're so it's harder to stay there if we stay in that you know my my single world view works for, for me no problems the only way we can stay there is by being very defended and keeping everybody out but if we go through some kind of a crisis maybe it's we realize something is really wrong something's really evil and we're shattered or we go through a crisis like Joseph went through you know he's put into the pit Something happens to our thinking and it jolts us to see the world, especially vis-a-vis -vis the issues at stake, in black and white. We see suddenly, you know, my old worldview didn't work. I can really see what's wrong now and I can really see what's right. And of course, I'm on the side of right and those who are not with me are on the side of wrong. And in the language of integrative complexity, which is a, a construct developed by the psychologist Peter Sudfeld and tested over many decades, very robust uh, framework of analysis, when we're in this IC level one, IC for integrative complexity, we're seeing the world in black and white. Now, I think when Joseph was under threat, he was seeing the world in black and white, and he felt absolutely torn. You know, who do I belong to? You know, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or do I belong to, to the Egyptians? My family will never take me back. You know, where does he live? Who does he join? Whose stories are right? You know, is it the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or is it the stories of Maat and the god Horus? This is so cool. Horus is the falcon-faced god, and he's the lord of the sky with great outstretched wings of a falcon. And he, in the mythology, Horus fought tooth and nail against the god Seth, which is the god of chaos, the god of drought, the god of death. And he prevailed, he overcame. So Horus won the, the leadership, the oversight of the land, the land of Egypt. And in the day, his whole eye, the sun, beams on the land. And at night, 
his wounded eye, the moon, because it goes through different phases and sometimes it's only a little sliver of light. His wounded eye, the moon, oversees the land in the night. Whose stories are true? Joseph had to decide how he's going to handle this black and white sort of temptation to think of the world in black and white. And that's how we think of the world when we're under threat. Now you can see that the journey goes on and there's a further stage when we begin to see the world not just in black and white, but we start to see the different shades of gray. The world is more complex than I thought. I can see some good in the other's perspective. Maybe I don't have to ditch everything of mine and in order to find something good in theirs, maybe I can do some kind of high-level trade-off where I maintain what's most important to me and take on something of the other to build some kind of, of a more hybrid, multifaceted worldview. Maybe I can borrow and beg and borrow from some other cultures and add to my own. Now that is often where we are in a postmodern context, kind of pick and mix, oh, anything will go, I'll have a bit of this, have a bit of that. Now there's strengths in that because we're past the black and white. You know, we're not, we're not, and the thing is the black and white worldview predicts conflict. And this is what Peter Sudfeld's research shows. If, if I see drops from its normal baseline, and this is based on the coding of the structure of thinking, not the words, not the content, the structure of thinking, when it drops from its usual baseline, it predicts violence between individuals and between groups, even military action. So how we see the world has real-world uh, outcomes. And so here's Joseph going through this kind of journey of how does he see the world? How does he deal with these dual cultures? And it's really not till towards the end of his life that he comes to what in IC terms is called uh, IC level five, where the branching out is happening and the weaving back together, the integrating is happening. Both stages of IC are happening. And that takes a lot of maturity and a lot of wisdom to look at the complexity, the mess of life, and to be able to see it with new eyes, put a new frame around it, and gain a new perspective on it that begins to make sense of very disparate, conflicting facets. And that is the last task of life, the task of integrating. And we see Joseph going through all of that. So those are some of the themes, the, uh, the birth trauma, the dual culture, and then finally I'm going to talk about the zig and zag of forgiveness. And as I mentioned, Joseph does not leap to forgiveness. He puts his brothers through their paces. He is watching them to learn for himself what he wants to do. And I just want to, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to give it away because it's a great read, I am told. How Joseph comes to forgive, we, of course, if any of us know the story, we know that he does forgive, but how does he get there? Well, I've improvised that in the book. I'm not going to tell you how I think he gets there. In my view, he gets there almost by accident. It mattered that he was open to considering the possibility. And this is, of course, considering the possibility in a cultural context, whether it's semi-nomadic or, you know, big militaristic empires, polytheistic empires, where the god and the pharaoh, the king, are fused as one. Any infraction against the king is a sin against the god, off with your head. I mean, there's no shades of gray here. You know, you have offended the kingdom by whatever infraction. So given that Joseph is in that context, the way he feels his way to forgiveness, I think it's a real prototype of the rest of the biblical narrative. I think there's so much in there, and the way I account for how he accidentally gets there and how said the loving kindness, seeps through his cracks. And just, just to end, and then we'll have Q&A, it's not like the whole family is 
wow, now everybody's really happy and it's a big group hug. In fact, there's ongoing misunderstanding. And the biggest shock to Joseph of all, at least in my take on the whole story, is at the end he realizes, I'm speaking first per person Joseph, I haven't been the central person in the drama. I always thought it was about me, you know, all the jealousy, all the hatred, all the fear, all the resentment, it was all about me. But his eyes are open and he sees the bigger picture, the family framework, and he realizes, really, it's all been about Jacob and Jacob's need to fuse possessively with the beloved. And that has created the family fault lines. I hope you read the book. And uh, <laughs> I think that's all I'm going to say. Let's have a Q&A. Thank you. Thank you. Fantastic to hear that. Um, I am the person who says it's a great read. I've said <laughs> said this morning, I'm sure. I'm not the only person. It really is. Um, I'm so... Um, I'm just going to hog the first question, and then I am going to throw it open. Um, I'm so struck reading this book again uh, in the last few days, how tough a text the Bible is, how much it can, um, how many ways we can deal with it, how much we can take from it, and how this very ancient, actually incredibly alien story um, can resonate, and so immediately with us. I'm so interested in what you say about forgiveness, and one of the things I kept thinking as I was reading it, um, particularly the early chapters, which I found very, those illuminating about, I kept thinking about particular people who behaved in particular ways that I thought might have stemmed from early experiences as you described them. And I wanted to ask uh, another thing about forgiveness, and that quote that so many of us all know about understanding, to understand all is to forgive all. And as Joseph comes through that understanding, do you think that um, that way he tests them, which is quite brutal actually, and and nasty. It's just really nasty, he yeah. really sets them up and frightens them and takes revenge really. Yeah. And this extraordinary thing to come perhaps through revenge to understanding and then to forgiveness. And do you think we can um, what's the question? How do we get there? How do we get there? That's the question. Okay. okay. <laughs> no, no, if we're no, stuck. No, I I'm, 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 I'm not yeah, because yeah, I'm trying no, to no, have no, one over on you. I'm just trying to speak to the yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, speak Absolutely. to the audience. Do, 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 do that. Stand. Okay. So I don't think understanding drives forgiveness. I think it helps. I think understanding is more like a result. Now, my take, you know, and all you can do is inhabit to the bet, you know, somebody else's narrative and of course how I inhabit it is going to reflect something about me and I don't think there's a right way of doing forgiveness. Okay. I mean the book will show that it's a journey that will zig and zag and there's, there are well-known phases but you could go through the phases in, in different ways and there are also well-known therapeutic strategies that will help you get over when you're stuck in unforgiveness. So I do outline some of that stuff. And understanding, e.g. reframing the offender, that's one way of understanding. Uh, I've come to understand why my brothers uh, first decided to murder me, second decided to bind me, throw me into a pit, possibly to die, then, oh, luck would happen, get sold to this caravan of Ishmaelites going to Egypt. Great outcome. It's not like the <laughs> like, And then he spends, really until, according to the Genesis account, till he's 30, he spends the, the rest of his life from age 16 to 30 in prison under horrible death-dealing conditions, his own flesh rotting off his bones. I mean, there's a lot to forgive. Um, in my view, what motivated Joseph, I don't think he really understands what motivated his brothers till the very end, in, in my view. But again, I'm, there's no one right way. But his path, I think, was 
He's, he's such a social person, is Joseph. He's a relational person. He wants to be the center. He wants, but even underneath, I want to be the center, the star, everybody bow down to me. I'm so wonderful. You know, I'll inherit everything, the moon, the stars, you know, all the sheaves will bow, bow down to me. Even underneath that is this genuine desire to belong to a family and to be loved and to love. And it's a little thing that I hint uh, throughout. You know, you have to drop these little hints. So the first time he sees his bedraggled brothers as refugees, you know, they're such a messy, smelly lot, you know, and, he's, and he, he knows that they're like, you know, uh, you know, bewailing their karma, you know, oh, we're here because of what we did. And he's like, the liars, I hate them all. But I wish they had loved me. And I think that's what drives it. It's in the hatred and the resentment and the trauma is, oh, I wish they had loved me. Oh, what I really would like is to have them love me. And I would like to love them. It's a little tiny whisper. That's what I think motivated it. But it wasn't strong enough. He needed help. Yes. But it wasn't obvious how the help came. And I think that's often us. How does God work? Yes. Very things happen, you go, wow, I think I was helped to do that. I might not have done that had I just been left on my own. But we can't really quite pin it down. I think we have to be willing to forgive, but often we don't have the strength to get ourselves there. And I think Joseph was willing to forgive because he, in his hatred, I hate them all, he wished they had loved him. So there was a little bit of willingness, and, and that willingness can grow. There's a lot of power play going on, a sort of, you know, using the power that he as Vizier now has to, to replay his decades of trauma. So he really doesn't do a snap easy forgiveness. He really does pay them back. But I believe he's, he's not only doing it, but he's also watching what's happening. And he has the awareness to observe and this is key, this is part of your thinking of understanding and reframing. So in the replaying and the twisting of the knife and making them go through so much of what he himself had gone through, there are little glimmers, they are so subtle, of change in a couple of the brothers, Judah in particular, Reuben a bit as well. Now the brothers never own up they never come out with that longed-for apology. I mean, all of us suffer burdens and, uh, you know, uh, broken relationships. If only that person would come and apologize and own up, I could forgive. It, we could be restored. And Joseph's brothers never own up. Not to Joseph's face. Not till after the fact of Joseph completely having forgiven them and having restored them and saved their lives and given them a good life in, in, in Goshen and you know some years later they finally say because they're still afraid that Joseph is going to do the dirty on, on them. So they still never even trust Joseph. They never even perceive him correctly. It's not like all is mended. But Joseph does perceive that there is some change and it's particularly Judah who uh, put himself as, as it were, the sacrificial lamb. I will put, you know, do not ask for us to put Benjamin into this place. It will kill our father. Take me instead and my little ones. So Judah offers himself and, and that starts to break Joseph's heart. And it starts to remind him of the love that he wishes he could have with them. It was Reuben. It was Reuben. Although I think there's a bit of ambiguity in the text. It, it's Reuben because Reuben is always like the big, he's the eldest, he's always the one with the big ideas and he comes up with the idea, don't kill him, let's sell him. Um, but there is some ambiguity. But Judah, and of course then this is uh, 
reflected in the final uh, blessings, which are prophecies of Jacob on each of the, the brothers. And I used to think that was kind of like a pretty ending, but as I was studying it, I realized it's not an ending. This is the final judgment. The mask is off. Jacob uncovers the uh, foibles and the crimes of the brothers. And it's as if it's the final judgment, not before Osiris and Anubis and the panoply of the gods, but in here, in this life, in this room, the final judgment. Everyone is being weighed against the feather of truth and found wanting. But uh, again, what you said about the Bible being quite tough and quite honest, and it was the honesty that drew me to it, is Joseph does not come off as a plaster cast saint. <laughs> Far from it. And in the final chapter that I write, and of course I'm following the account, I think quite closely, just the little issue of during the, uh, the famine, and Joseph is making sure that people get fed from the grains, that he had had the you know, prescience to store seven years worth of grain, well, as the people are running out of money to buy the grain, they end up selling themselves their land and their cattle as slaves to Pharaoh. So all of Egypt at the end of these 14 years is changed by Joseph. Pharaoh is very pleased. How wonderful to have everybody as landless slaves, owing one-fifth of their produce to him. No more the battles between the nobles based on land-based alliances. Ooh, chaos has been averted. So, and that's in the Bible, you know, that he reduced the land to slavery. Not a good outcome. <laughs> it often is, sometimes, and I, this is in the chapter, and there are some very well-known accounts, and I believe them, where under, you know, horrible uh, conditions or in traumatic events, a person is able to instantly and fully forgive. That does happen. That does happen. Uh, in fact, one of the uh, excellent psychologists of forgiveness named Everett Worthington, he's in the States, uh, and he's produced therapies for people you know, having problems with, with forgiveness. And he is the, one of the authors of the stages of forgiveness model that most people go on, you know, go through different processes. You can zig and zag, but you usually have to deal with a number of issues. His life history, his mother was murdered in an awful, his elderly mother in an awful and brutal and humiliating way. And he had to go and identify the body. And when he did that, and it was so often, he was very close to his mother, he unaccountably had the instant grace of forgiveness. And from that point on, he dedicated his life to researching forgiveness. So he, that's what he experienced, and I think there are people who do that. And then in his clinical work, he found for most people that it's quite an arduous process that have starts and stops, and you can get stuck. So both and. And I also think we have an important role to play, not as the achievers of full forgiveness, which I agree is beyond us and has to come from beyond us, but it's very important how we attune ourselves to the possibility of forgiving. And it might just be scanning for maybe possibilities that are beyond the black and white, you did this wrong to me, you know, and unless we take that attitude uh, that allows for the possibility, I think then we are holding the key to other people's well-being and our own, and we should hand that over. So I think we do hold some responsibility and forgiveness, even though we can't take it the whole hog. Oh, excellent. You, you know, and those two facts about me are so pertinent to the writing of this book. Um, because I hadn't ever written this way, it, if I hadn't been a dancer, I couldn't have written that way because it had to be this 
embodied visceral experience in the choreography of all these conflicting uh, relationships. So it really was dance that gave me the words. Um, and yes, as a dancer, I was steeped in biblical narratives and ideas and emotions, and that was all that our dance was about. And so, uh, but I am a dual culture kid, not just because I'm an American living in Britain, <laughs> and I've been here for a long time, I know my accent belies that. <laughs> I, well, I was getting my passport renewed, because I'm, I'm a British citizen as well, and the person renewing my passport, ooh, your accent is very broad. <laughs> You know, you've lived here for 30 years and you still sound like you're just off the boat. But I am a dual culture kid and what was a real uh, invasion of a new worldview to me was when I studied psychology, first at the University of Surrey, then I came to, to Cambridge and then I've been there ever since. Um, and that was the different culture, which is very left brain, very linear, very analytic, very abstract. I thank God for empirical approaches, I, all the stuff I do, because my, my work now, uh, using the concept of integrative complexity, I see, is in creating uh, interventions for extremisms, all kinds of extremisms. Um, and I work with young people from different groups and that's sort of beginning to spread. And I've, it's all empirically based. I research it, I pre and post test it. So I'm really grateful for the empirical nature of psychology. And actually that kind of, uh, that was the bridge to the dance because at least it's about real world, you know, and how things really are. And how things really are is always a lot blobbier than the theory. <laughs> and, and that was always the case with dance, is like you know what the choreography should be doing and you have to make do with a less than perfect rendition of it. And uh, so I found that's how I integrated uh, dance and psychology, because they were different worlds, especially psychology done in the Faculty of Divinity. <laughs> Read that as you will. <laughs> Chalk and cheese. <laughs> Thank you. I'm just going to hog a last question and then we'll sell this wonderful book and say thank you to Sarah. Um, I just want to ask about, um, is Hesed grace, do you think? Well, I think it is grace. I asked my Jewish um, uh, colleague who's a good Hebrew scholar and he said it's loving kindness and that's mm. what I could find in the mm. sources. But now grace is probably a, a more uh, uh, more of a Christian concept, yeah. but I think it is it probably leads to it is the sense of God's loving kindness, and you know poured out yes. more than all the time. Uh, yeah, just there pouring out. So I think grace is close. Thank you, thank you. So thank you, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs>